This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up later in today's show, we hear excerpts from veterans. We are going to start today talking about progress and who decides what qualifies as progress and why do people get so angry when things change and those who get angry when they don't. The recent coronation of King Charles in England brought a lot of counter-protests, people saying it's time to be done with the monarchy. And also on this Memorial Day, we wanted to have a discussion about memorials, about monuments as they're being torn down, as other people argue they should be reconsidered, maybe add education to the monument instead of tearing it down. All that and the history of progress with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a history professor at the University of North Dakota, for this month's Philosophical Currents. Part of the issue with words like progress is that they simplify incredibly complex things. So let me go backwards for a second. Through most of history, what people wanted more than anything else was for things not to change. What people wanted was for things not to get worse, because change meant degeneration. Change meant you lost the plot of land as a serf that your that your lord let you have, or change meant you lost all of your kids in childbirth instead of half of your kids, or change meant the Visigoths rode into your town, slaughtered you, and then enslaved you. Through most of human history, people have thought that change meant something worse would happen. And this idea that we want life to be better off for our children than it was for us is entirely new. It comes out of the 18th and 19th century shift both to a scientific worldview uh, a world, a, a view of, of history and how history unfolds, but also the shift to uh, a market economy and, and what gets called capitalism, although that's very complicated, what gets called capitalism, which improves things over time. If you are not existing in a system that improves things over time, if the son of the king is going to be king and and his son is going to be king and his son is going to be king and his son is going to be king and his son is going to be king, there's no room for progress for anybody. And so you need both a worldview and a political and economic system that allows for positive change before you can even enter the concept of progress into your way of thinking. When you say it came around in the 18th century, kind of where are we talking? So two things happen one after the other. The first thing is that as science begins to overtake religion, Thinkers, especially in Scotland, Germany, and France, start to think about history as following scientific rules. And they start to think of history in terms of stages. First, this is, this is Adam Smith's stage theory. First, there were basically hunters and gatherers. Then there were agricultural folks. Then there were um, feudal folks. And then there was the market system. And that this is basically inevitable. This is the natural progress of history. And 
because the people under the market system are materially better off than the people who were hunters and gatherers, then you can start seeing history in terms of progress. And he has two basic standards for why they're better off. The first is they have more access to food and shelter and, and a better quality of life on the most basic level. At, because of that, they kill their kids less often. That poverty made people have to leave their kids out to starve or choose between boys and girls or just have to choose between me eating food and being able to, you know, take care of my other seven kids or letting this other kid die. The motivation for Smith to develop this market theory is entirely humanitarian. So he and then the Marquis de Condorcet developed these what are called stadial or stage histories. And that defines the way that we see the world as a whole, see, see, see history. Kant comes along a few years later, around the same time as Condorcet, but after Smith. And he writes this, this famous essay called What is Enlightenment? It's in a response to a contest. And basically what he says is, enlightenment is man's freedom from their tutelage. And what that means, now that's an English translation of a German sentence, but what that means is enlightenment is independence and autonomy. And we only get that by looking at how the generations improve one after the other. You don't look at how individuals improve because one person can be free and one person is not free. But you look at how much freedom and autonomy and how much self-knowledge and knowledge about the world comes from generational change. Now, these two notions are revolutionary and, frankly, evolutionary in the sense that any worldview that you have that doesn't incorporate those things is regressive in some sense. So then in the 19th century, you start to get First, the science of sociology, which tries to describe human behavior and so tries to describe how all this collectivity works. And you get the Industrial Revolution, where there is major changes in, in life that had never been seen before, because what the Industrial Revolution did was take technology and make it accessible to the poorest of the poor as well as the richest of the rich. Now, the poorest of the poor had horrible lives and 10-year-old and, and kids were needed in the factories because their limbs were small and they could stick their hands and pull, you know, shoes out of the, out of the, the gears and often losing their hand in the process. And so you needed... Charles Dickens to come along and say, hey, <laughs> you know, this is awful. And all Charles Dickens is, is Adam Smith after the Industrial Revolution. So what you get is this notion of progress that first starts on the global, almost, you know, level of nature, that history progresses in a certain way. Then you move down to the human race progresses in a certain way, and then you move down to societies progress in a certain way. And that's where you get this notion that my child can do better off than me because generational wealth, among other things, combined with technology, now belongs to the merchants as well as the aristocrats. And then eventually 
with a lot of changes through the 20th century, the working class, where they can pass that money on to other people. So it starts large and it ends up small. And is it possible for that progress to swing too far in one direction? Well, progress by definition doesn't swing too far because progress, capital P, is always good. But it is certainly true that the tools that we have can be used for evil as opposed to good. The paradigmatic example of that is the Holocaust, because all the Holocaust is, is what has happened to the Jews for millennia, but with advanced technology, right? The Holocaust is an incredibly efficient way of killing people that had been being killed for uh, generation after generation after generation. The first ghetto is in Venice, Italy in the, in the 15th century. And the word ghetto means ironworks. And the, the Jews were put in a very, very particular place in, in Italy behind uh, a, a large fence and near where, where the metallurgy stuff was going on. And they weren't allowed to leave except to deal with money, which is a whole other conversation. And so what's been, what happened in the 15th century was the exact uh, foreshadowing of what happened in the 20th century. The difference is the assembly line. And the invention of the, the, this is another example. Adam Smith was the first person to systematize market economies and to systematize economics. That's what makes him so important. And what he does is he talks about the division of labor as a natural human occurring phenomenon, that what human beings do when they discover the division of labor is they create efficiency. So his example is a pin factory. If one person takes a pin and stretches it and sharpens it and puts a little head on it, they can make seven or eight pins a day. I can't remember the exact names he uses. But if there is a person who straightens it and just straightens it, just straightens it, and someone else puts the sharpener on and sharpener on and sharpener on, and someone else puts the head on and head on, he says something like, uh, a factory can make 40,000 pins a day. Hmm. Now, take that wonderful, efficient progress and put it in a concentration camp where one person lines everyone up, one person marches the Jews to the oven, one person mm. starts the gas, one person dot, 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 without getting too morbid, then all of a sudden, instead of killing 20 Jews a day, you can kill 10,000 Jews a day. When they were first figuring out how to kill the Jews, what they had was they had mobile gas chambers, which were trucks. They would put Jews in the back of a truck. They would take a hose from the tailpipe, put it on the tailpipe, run the hose into the back of the truck, seal it up and drive it until people stopped screaming. And that's how they invented the gas chambers. But that's not efficient. So you use the division of labor and you use this technology for evil and it's still efficient. And so all of that is to say, if we're using the language of progress, which is inherently positive, again, progress, capital P, then you can't say it swings too much in one way or another. If, however, what we mean is the technology has progressed or the methods of killing have progressed, lowercase p, mm. then you can say, well, you know, in, in, in the spirit, if we are analyzing in terms of efficiency, then we have progressed, even though what we're being efficient at is genocide. It's the dark side of all of it. Yeah, and it's really not 
a line of thinking that had even occurred to me when I wanted to talk to you about progress because I definitely was approaching this topic of capital P progress as in the baseline assumption is that progress is good and not even breaking it down into that distinction between capital P and lower P progress. And this is because the term progress is a political symbol, if nothing else. What's the difference between a liberal and a conservative? A liberal is someone who believes that all else being equal, change is good. It's why the liberals changed their their name to progressive. When, when liberals stopped being able to be strong enough to control the narrative, they changed their name in America from liberals to progressive. Why? Because it it highlighted the core liberal belief that all else being equal, change is good, and therefore all else being equal, we're going to progress. A conservative is someone who wants to conserve the present. A conservative is someone who wants to say all else being equal, change is bad, and we want things to stay the same. Now, currently in the United States, we aren't seeing the debate really between conservative and liberals. What we're seeing is the debate between conservatives and reactionaries. A reactionary is someone who wants to regress, who wants to go back in time. And it's not surprising that this is religious often because many of the major religions are built on this idea that there was in the beginning of humanity the fall and the goal is not to move forward and progress into a better humanity but somehow to get back to the forgotten kingdom to get back to eden and so if we can cause enough damage if we can regress far enough then in some metaphorical or literal way we can overcome the original fall and get back to a life of perfection or and 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 that may be after you know after the apocalypse or something it, it depends on your ideology but that sense remember i said early on that most of human history what they didn't want was things to get worse and because these were deeply religious times and because human beings need meaning in their lives the story of returning to the time before the fall was entirely consistent with keeping everything the the way they are at minimum or moving backwards because then people can take solace in the fact that their backwards movement is closer to paradise. And so society, economics, politics, reality rests on the meanings that people have in their lives, which almost always comes from some sort of religion mm. or other cultural force that either liberates people or traps them, depending on your perspective and depending on the nature of the religion. How oversimplified is it, Jack, for, for me to say then it sounds like most people, whether they're liberal or conservative or religious or, or non-religious, tend to, and, and we'll take the extremes out of this, like people who would advocate for something like the Holocaust, but most people want more or less the same thing, but just have two vastly different approaches for how to accomplish that. 
I think most people want the same things in globally defined way. Most people want to be happy. This is Aristotle. Aristotle's main point is that everything we do is in service of happiness. Now, he has a particularly idiosyncratic definition of happiness that we don't have to get into, but that all things we do, whether it's brushing our teeth or getting a job or, or, or loving our partner, is all in the service of happiness. People want to be happy. In order to be happy, they need basically stable lives. They need the hierarchy of needs met. They need food and shelter and affection and security and things like that. People want that. However, what they call security is going to vary from person to person, right? I personally find living in a economically diverse area more secure than living in an area where everyone is of the same equal economic level. And that's because of where I grew up and, and, and other things. But there are other people who think security is, is, is everyone being at the same level and in the same sort of circumstances themselves. I think it's more secure to live in a diverse area of diverse ethnicity and diverse language and diverse food and diverse child rearing styles and all of that sort of stuff. Other people will disagree. And that's where the sort of the diversity questions and the liberal perspective about about you know multiculturalism fits into this debate about progressivism because if what you want is everyone to be the same then you have to assume that everything needs to stay the same and that means homogeneity is a part of conservatism if what you want is for people to be different and for you to engage with different cultures and have newcomers come in and other people leave and and this group of migrants or this group of refugees or this group of immigrants are going to come in and go uh, around you, then you want things to change. And yet the thing that I am seeking is the same thing that everyone is ultimately seeking, which is happiness, security, safety. So the, one of the central insights of philosophy, and this too is oversimplified, but one of the, the central insights of philosophy is it's not the first question. The, the first word isn't the thing that's that, that, that's that interesting. It's the second, it's the third, it's the fourth word. So what does it mean to be happy? Now, that's a great philosophical question, but most people will say, okay, to be happy is to be secure, and they'll leave it like that. But a philosopher asks, well, what does it mean to be secure? Well, what does it mean to be not be afraid? Well, what is fear? How much agency do we have? It's those follow-up questions, those disciplined investigations that, that pile up on one another that makes it philosophical. But ultimately, I think people tend to want the same things, and some people are much farther away from it than others. All right, Jack, I kind of want to call you on this. You feel more secure when you are surrounded by people who are different from you. What if someone moves in next door and puts up a swastika symbol in the window? That's pretty different well, from you. That's pretty different. And first of all, there's a difference between me being surrounded by people who are different than me and everyone else is the same. And being surrounded by people, all of whom are different from one another. Because if I'm in a neighborhood of everyone's different from one another, then the person who puts the swastika isn't just attacking me. 
they're probably attacking a lot of other people as well. And so I would have camaraderie in dealing with that because the immigrants and the people of different religions and the people of different economic classes, they will feel as threatened as I would, even if I'm the only Jew in the area. Now, with that said, the fact that difference can be good doesn't mean that all difference is good. I don't want to live next to someone with the plague, <laughs> but no one is is more different than me than someone who has the plague when I'm healthy. Philosophers deal with this by distinguishing between hard cases and easy cases. It's an easy case that if your neighbor hangs a swastika, they're a problem and you got to deal with that. And that since a swastika is inherently a threat and it's a symbol of violence and, among other things, lack of judgment, you have to deal with it in a very different way than, than say, someone who likes uh, country music instead of hip hop. Right. Those are very, very different things. Those are the easy cases. The hard case is what happens if I live next to a vegan and I really love barbecuing? Hmm. How do you negotiate that? How do you negotiate politeness, respect for someone else's point of view while still living the life that you live? And that's difficult because on the one hand, I want to respect my vegan neighbor and I don't want to waft my burning flesh into their windows. On the other hand, just because someone else is a vegan doesn't mean that that I have to be one. And so that's going to depend on a lot of things and it's going to be negotiations and sometimes I'm going to be selfish and sometimes I'm going to be generous. And I would expect the same thing from them. Right. One option is to say, always tell them in advance when I'm going to 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 be barbecuing and so they can go to the movies. Right. Uh, that seems like a fair trade. I will only do it when you're not home. But sometimes you're going to have to leave precisely because I'm doing it. Hard cases are what's interesting. Easy cases are used to make things seem more complicated when they're not. Hmm. Well, okay, is this a good example of a hard case broadening this out of the neighborhood and into society? I'm thinking of things like monuments being torn down, and some are saying that's pandering to uh, left-wing radicals, and others are saying we don't want to keep glorifying people who were severely racist, sexist, whatever it was that we, we no longer appreciate as a society. Help us understand this from an easy case to a hard case as it works on a societal level when you have such profound difference of opinion on something like who do we glorify in terms of a monument and what does it mean when we take it down? The people who want to retain our history, they have a point. But the people who recognize that glorifying slave masters and and people who commit war crimes and things like that also have a point. And so they're debating about tearing down these statues. Why not leave the statue up but change the words? So it says, you know, John Smith, uh, this statue of John Smith was erected in 1927 to celebrate the blah, 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 blah. It turns out John Smith was a slave owner. And we no longer have this this up to glorify his image, but order, but in order to show him 
uh, as a flawed human being and to recognize that our heroes sometimes do things that are really awful, right? Why isn't that a solution? Why isn't education a solution? And the answer is because everyone feels certain. Now, with that said, that doesn't solve the problem of John's, the statue of John Smith staring into someone's living room all the time when they feel personally and profoundly harmed by the legacy of John Smith. That's what makes it a hard case. What makes it a hard case is that there are going to be people who are genuinely affected by it, not symbolically, but emotionally. If you know, years ago, there was an issue on our campus. Years ago, the University of North Dakota's team name was the Fighting Sioux. And this was regarded as racist and hostile. And there was all sorts of big fights about it. Something happened and there was an issue on campus that I had to deal with. And I was talking to a listserv and the listserv was made up of many, many, many Native Americans. And I said, don't worry, everyone, the cavalry is coming. And someone responded by saying, well, yes, that's exactly who we need to worry about. And I wrote, ha, 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 but I had no idea what they were talking about. Someone privately sent me a message and said, look, when you're talking to Native Americans, the cavalry is a bad thing because the cavalry was there to slaughter Native Americans. The cavalry may have been there to, quote unquote, save white people, but they were actually there to destroy the Native Americans. Now, I, at that point, didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote an email to the listserv and I said, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I just learned this. I apologize. I'll never use this again. And to my knowledge, I have never used it again. Right. If the use of the cavalry, if the statue of John Smith is really profoundly emotionally destructive to the people who are under his gaze or have to walk by him every day at work, that's what makes it a hard case. It's not that it's history that makes it difficult. There are lots of solutions to deal with difficult history. Education is almost always my first choice. It's the day-to-day -day living and the day-to-day -day exposure. Studies have shown over and over again that when an African-American hears the N-word, that it actually creates particular neurological reactions in their brain. And that if someone uses the N-word against them, and this is why I stopped using the full word in class because I became aware of these studies. If someone uses that as an attack, it has very similar physiological reactions to being hit. And in mm -hmm. fact, one of the things we know is that emotional scars last significantly longer than physical scars, right? That yeah. all sticks and stones uh, may break my bones, but name will never hurt me is exactly the opposite. I don't remember the fights I got in when I was a kid. I don't remember falling or hurting or whatever, but the nasty things that my parents said when they were in a bad mood or, or the, the kids who tried to bully me or whatever, I carry that with me all the time, right? And so I'm not advocating for beating somebody up, <laughs> but, um, but this idea that only physical violence harms 
is the exact opposite of what it turns out to be true. And therefore, the thing that we have to deal with when it comes to monuments is not the legacy of the history and acknowledging that or not acknowledging that. It's the emotional damage that many people will have to suffer through as they encounter these monuments during their day-to-day lives. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota.